You're listening to the Your Queer Story podcast, the podcast that inspires peace, love, and radicalism, led by your favorite hosts, Evan Jones and Paul Hobbs. Trigger warning. Our content covers centuries of LGBTQ plus stories, and occasionally we may use outdated language or cover topics that include violence, assault, homophobia, transphobia, as well as other injustices against marginalized communities. Make sure you subscribe and review wherever you are listening, and be sure to follow us on all social media at Your Queer Story. And if you want exclusive content, join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash yourqueerstory. You're here, now let's get queer. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free 30-day trial and audiobook download by going to www.audibletrial.com queer. And again, that's audibletrial.com queer. Sign up for free today, you Christians. Hello and welcome to another episode of Your Queer Story. We're your hosts. I'm the dried up used rosebud in your grandmother's garden, Paul Hobbs. And I'm that refreshing yet uncomfortable trickle of sweat that's running down your ass crack right now, Evan Jones. And we are so happy you have joined us today for part two of The Lavender Scare. We want to thank our listeners who participate on our social media and all of you who have reached out to us through our support group or private messaging. It's so much fun connecting with you guys. So remember, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and Facebook. And as always, you can check out our webpage at yourqueerstory.com. We've been doing some updates to the format, so feel free to stop by and take a look. And if you heard at the beginning of this, we have an exciting announcement. We finally have a sponsor. So we've got an official commercial in the middle of this for you, but we are now sponsored by Audible. And you can get your one month uh, subscription with a book by using the code QUEER. You go to audibletrial.com slash QUEER and uh, you can get your free 30-day subscription plus a free book. There's more on that later, but thank you to our listeners. Please continue to download and share our episodes. It means a lot. And without further delay, because we have a lot of shit to cover today, let's jump into The Lavender Scare Part 2, Sexual Psychopaths. If you haven't gone back and listened to the first part of this series, we strongly encourage it, because it may sound like you just dived into the middle of a national shitstorm. And that's basically what was brewing in Washington in 1950. Just a decade earlier, thousands of queers all across the country had come to Washington, D.C. in search of employment and community. And much to their delight, they found both extensively. The capital became a haven for LGBTQ individuals, with many living their lives fairly openly and without fear of harm or repercussion. And that all began to change after World War II when Democrats remained in power and Republicans began to fear that they would lose the White House forever. Suddenly, there was desperation to urge the American public that they needed to change the administration. To do this, they must show that the administration was corrupt, and to show corruption, they needed a villain. And again, you gotta go back and listen to the first episode, because we talked about how Washington was like this really gay city, and it was a lot of fun. A lot of gay bars, lesbian bars, drag scene, all kinds of great stuff going on in Washington, D.C. in the 30s and first part of the 40s. And in 1946, George Morris Fabe 
became the U.S. attorney for the Capitol and launched a torrid campaign on sex crimes. On the surface, this appeared as a way to prevent child molesters from getting off with misdemeanors for their crimes. And it is true that there were no strict laws in D.C. that prosecuted pedophiles. However, the net for sex offenders was thrown wide and queer individuals were swept under it. This further solidified the idea that homosexuals were pedophiles, an age-old stigma formed by the political right. How many times have we heard that in life, right? It's like, whenever there's pedophile, there's always pedophiles or homosexuals. Homosexuals are pedophiles. It's like this vicious circle. It started immediately after the Roman Empire. That's right. Yeah, when we talk about yeah. The yeah. second the Christians got on board, <laughs> that was the end of it. Man, we're not we're not pointing fingers. We're just we're just saying facts here, people. <laughs> uh, and an unnamed congressional aide stated, "The fags, fairies, pansies, and other sex perverts hang around in the park areas, usually looking for some boys upon whom they can foist their attention." One individual who pounced on these new crackdowns was Republican Congressman Arthur Miller. In 1948, Miller introduced the Miller Sexual Psychopath Law to Congress, and by June, President Truman had signed the bill into law. And it might be a little late to throw in this trigger warning, but we may use some terminology when we are reporting uh, actual statements that were made during this time period. We do try to avoid the, I did try to avoid the harsher offensive language, but there is a little bit in here. And um, also the episode in general could just be triggering because it's a rough, it's a rough stuff. It's a rough time. It's a rough period. And it's kind of one of the many starts of the downfall, I guess, of the LGBT community yeah. in, public's, uh, in the public eye. Yes, it's the downfall and also it's a rebirth of like an official movement, as we'll see towards the end. But before the Sexual Psychos Act, being caught with a member of the same sex was simply a charge of disorderly conduct and a bail of $25. Why are you laughing? <laughs> How are you gonna, I don't understand how it could be a disorderly conduct. It's just a disorderly conduct. Just a couple of boys, you know, rough, rough house and around. We're gonna take them down to the jailhouse. We're gonna charge them twenty five dollars. We're gonna let them go. It's no big deal, okay? <laughs> There's a couple guys sucking each other's dicks. Everybody does it. Am I right? Yeah. Here and there. <laughs> After Miller's draft became law, though, sodomy was punishable by a fine of one thousand dollars and up to twenty years in prison. Where they would continue to sodomize. Yes, but at least they're locked away and we don't have to see it anymore. To quote author David K. Johnson, who wrote the book The Lavender Scare, which is the main source resource for this episode, sodomy was any penetration, however slight, of the mouth or anus of one person with the same sexual organs as the other. I don't think that's what happened in the Bible. The that, that is, that, what do you mean? Sodomy, yeah. I thought it was just anal penetration. I, well, first of all, the Bible doesn't delve into detail. All they know <laughs> is that there's a bunch of sodomites that like to pop, fuck each other. And to be careful, they were like the mouth or the anus. Because then it's come time to be like, it's just a blowjob. You know what I'm saying? That's what the officer just said. It's just a blowjob. We all get blowjobs. They were trying to prevent any loopholes. Exactly, because they knew the queers are awesome at getting through loopholes. But even if the so-called sex pervert wasn't sent to prison, they would still be committed to St. Elizabeth's Hospital indefinitely until the superintendent determined that they were sufficiently recovered. So even if you somehow managed to get away without paying $1,000 or going to prison for 20 fucking years, you even just being brought in and accused, you could be sent to St. Elizabeth's Hospital and held forever. 
And while men were the main focus of these arrests, lesbian and bisexual women also faced harsh charges. An example is pulled from a police record in 1949 when two women were arrested at a downtown hotel charged with sodomy and placed under a $500 bond. So at least they were being fair. You know what? You don't see that much in history. So at least... (laughs) Women are never treated equally. (laughs) At least when they're gay, they are, right? Exactly. So the Alger Hiss case which we discussed in part one, further captured the public's attention on matters of homosexuality. Hiss was accused of being a communist, and his accuser, Whitaker Chambers, was a self-proclaimed reformed homosexual. So that's somebody who is like, I was gay, but you know what? I'm not gay anymore. But I'm definitely not gay anymore. I'll tell you that no. right now. And they always stand with their hand on their hip. They're a little, you know, <laughs> cocked to the side with like... The, the gayest face you've ever seen. I am super straight. I have sex with my wife. Why do you have a British accent? I, because British people <laughs> like, his name is fucking Whitaker. <laughs> Many stories were spun to portray Hiss and Chambers as lovers who had a falling out. In addition, Chambers spoke openly about how communism had led him to homosexuality and the hotbed of immorality found in Soviet meetups. The his trial allowed Republicans and the media to portray homosexuals and communists as one because Russia was extremely gay at this time. Oh, so gay, so gay. And that's why they're so angry now because it's all this repression has been shoved back up their ass. Um, but this was a big thing, though. I, I don't know how true it was, but according to Whitaker Chambers, at these communist meetings, like half the time they were just like an orgy of people well, fucking each other. There was, a, <laughs> there was a lot of gay people in the... Co- communist party at the time that's true so when you look at the statistics um i mean a lot of homosexuals did identify as communists because they wanted a more open environment to where everybody was more equal right they wanted more equality so it makes sense that minorities would gravitate towards communism and if you're there but we're all here talking about communism we might as well just fuck a little on the side so when Joseph McCarthy revealed to the world that the State Department had employed 90 sex perverts, the national scene exploded. John Cheever summed up this time period as so. The year everybody in the United States was worried about homosexuality. They were worried about other things, too, but their other anxieties were published, discussed, and ventilated, while their anxieties about homosexuality remained in the dark, remained unspoke. Is he? Was he? Did they? Am I? Gay? Could I? Seemed to be at the back of everyone's mind. A great emphasis, by way of defense, was put upon manliness, athletics, hunting, fishing, and conservative clothing. But the lonely wife wondered, glancingly, about her husband at his hunting camp, and the husband himself wondered with whom he shared a rude bed of pines. Was he? Had he? Did he want to? Will he? Had he ever? <laughs> In March of 1950, Lieutenant Roy Blick of the D.C. Vice Squad testified that the Capitol was home to over 5,000 homosexuals and estimated that 3,750 of them worked for the federal government. When the story hit newsstands, it shook the nation. Newsweek's front page shouted boldly, Homosexuals Unlimited! Oh, if only! (laughs) Republican Senator Kenneth Weary took reins of the investigations and he called... The infiltration of the subversives and moral perverts into the executive branch of the United States government. Pressure mounted on department heads to weed out the homos. When the leaders of the Commerce Department declared that they didn't have a single sex pervert in their employment, they were met with this letter of disapproval. It would seem with the Department of State weeding out as many homosexuals as it has, 
your statement that with 46,000 employees, you have not been able to weed out any out just does not jibe. It should be no surprise that Lieutenant Blick's estimate of 5,000 homosexuals in Washington was not a solid statistic and one he varied on quite frequently. We can never know how many queer individuals were in Washington, D.C. at this time, but we know that this tactic of making up numbers helped to feed the hysteria surrounding homosexuality. Like McCarthy, both Lieutenant Blick and Senator Wary were excellent at claiming to have reports and evidence to support their wild claims, yet never producing them, and these lies only allowed others to further exaggerate the facts. Yes, so, I mean, this is, we see this as a common theme, uh, even today, in some parties, I don't want to say which one, uh, uh, politicians in general lie and exaggerate facts, but there is one party that is known to like really throw out some bullshit numbers and then just be and when people are like okay well let's have some facts on it they're no, like what they do is they say some people say some people say that's, that's, that's their a great whole one. opening for everything some people <laughs> say because you know what if you say that you don't need a source you don't need to prove it yes because you're literally saying that some people are saying this some people say that homosexuals are murderers and if you look at them wrong they will murder you you know what some people also say that there's a fucking <laughs> Spaghetti monster in the sky. <laughs> yes, some people say that. Actually, smart people say that. The 1951 best-selling expose, Washington Confidential, by Jack Layton, Lee Mortimer, claimed, There are at least 6,000 homosexuals on the government payroll, most of them known, and these comprise only a fraction of the total of their kind in the city, which is a garden of pansies. If you're wondering where your wandering semi-boy is tonight, he's probably in Washington. Probably true. <laughs> the next year, Leighton Mortimer claimed the number of homos had grown to 10,000. Because that's because what homosexuals like to do. We multiply. When we're getting persecuted, but yes, we multiply because, like rabbits, because we're just fucking so much and then we're just not having babies. Have you heard of the gay agenda? <laughs> no, it's just like, we they go from 6,000 to 10,000, like all this persecution's happening and people are like, you know where I want to go? I want to go to Washington, D.C. It sounds like a great place. <laughs> Newspapers, magazines, and books came came out in troves with each announcing a higher number of sex deviants in the nation's capital, where he had solidified the idea of homosexuality and bureaucrats the way McCarthy had joined homosexuals and communists. So they just were like, every magazine was like, how can I sell more subscriptions? I'm just yeah. going to add a hundred, a hundred more homos in there. Homosexuals unlimited. No, it really was. <laughs> it was like, this was the selling point. Like it, I, I love how people act like homosexuals just appeared in like the eighties and you know, people are like, what, what the hell? Like there was a stone, there was Stonewall. And then all of a sudden these gays are coming out everywhere. Now they want rights. And, <laughs> but then, tr then truth, they think they're people. Yeah. Right. The truth truth is that in the 1950s, it was all people talked about. If you wanted to sell a book, there were novels written. There were, of course, these these Washington Confidential, which was supposed to be an expose and was just a load of horse shit. There was anything. The you, if you were on the radio, if you were on television, if you wanted to uh, be heard, you had to talk about homosexuals. It was all the nation was talking about. And it's important to understand that because you understand the fear around it. You know, you understand, like, you're you're constantly demonizing uh, the queer communities. And the reason people were so scared of homosexuals, homosexuals is because they were placed as equals to communists, and yeah. people in this time period were terrified that communists were going to take over the government. Um, and you don't have the age of information like you do now, where you can just look things up online and see whether what you how you feel about things. The only resource you have is your newspaper and your and your magazines. 
So, right. so people are saying, hey, guess what? All these homosexuals, they're communists. You know what communists do? They kill their government and take over. Right. You know what else homosexuals are? They're sex perverts. They're coming for your children. Mm-hmm. Make sure you watch out in the bathroom. Make sure you watch out at the ballparks. They're going to be there. They're going to be looking for your kid. The FBI released uh, tapes that bas- that literally said this, that warned teenagers and warned young kids of the homosexuals lurking in their parks, waiting to prey on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just constant... Sum it up to how um, the right wing is portraying Mexicans today. Yes, that's a it's yes. Exactly Mexican the same. immigrants. You yeah, know, they're Mexican here to immigrant. rape and murder, right? They're that's sending, what they're sending their rapists, their murderers, their drug dealers. We need to keep them out of the country. They're making people scared of this mostly innocent. I mean, I would overall no more likely to cause any crimes than any other group, group of people. people. Right. They're just portraying them as villains to make the country scared of them the same way they did to the LGBTQ community in the 50s. Exactly. They're coming here to take your jobs. They're going, you know... They're going to rape you. They're going to sell drugs. They're going to bring all this crime in. They're they're going to bring our nation down because we're doing such a fucking great job right now. The world is just so impressed with us. So, (laughs) heaven forbid that we have any Mexican or Cuban immigrants or people of color come and immigrate into our country. No, no, no. Because America is just a pinnacle of fucking success. Right now. America is an entire <laughs> white nation that speaks English. That's who we are, everybody. That's right. And if you ever have to learn another language, well... And if I have to push fucking the number one to speak for English one more goddamn time... I swear oh, to God, I lose my, my goddamn God. mind. This isn't the America I signed up for. <laughs> so, Washington, D.C. had become a laughing stock of the nation. Radio hosts, news anchors, and television personalities responded the way they always have by making the federal government and home homosexuals the butt of every joke. One popular joke went this way. Have you heard about the two State Department employees? John Fitzpatrick and Patrick Fitzjohn? You get it? It's John Fitzpatrick (laughs) and Patrick Fitzjohn. I mean, if they fit each other. (laughs) I don't know what the problem is. (laughs) In an attempt to regain their status, the government began to purge itself. Senator Clyde Hoey, who yes was a hoe, was, <laughs> was charged with investigating queers in the government. He was 73 years old. Dang, he was that old. He was a, whoa, he was really getting around, huh? Yeah, he was. <laughs> like, uh, hey, let's, uh, let's let Grandpa do this. Okay, if that's what you want me to do, uh, I guess I'll take a look into it. <laughs> so this 73-year-old man... Uh, was truly not interested in the task he was charged with. He was like, what are you talking about? God damn, I don't want to investigate that stuff. It's baloney and I don't want to get involved. He claimed to a friend. Regardless, he was stuck with the job and determined to do it thoroughly. He did have one strict condition. He wanted things done low-key. No public hearings, he instructed his staff. Do it thoroughly, investigate it from hell to breakfast, but we're not going to have any hearings that McCarthy can make a big headline out of because fucking McCarthy was trying to basically be the equivalent of the YouTube star of the time by making these fucking ridiculous public hearings so that he could become fucking famous McCarthy because you know what? He was a nobody. He was a media whore. He was, yes, he was a media whore. He was a nobody who found that he could make a career out of homosexuals and the Red and Lavender Scare. And he took advantage of it. And he just, he was using our community to become a star. He was. He did. He, and that's truly all it was to him. And that's what I was saying before. Like, it's not that I, 
I have no respect for Joseph McCarthy. He wasn't a good man, but I just, he was a puppet that was used. It's, it's like the way that Donald Trump uses his presidency to gain more notoriety and more screen time, and it's all about him. I don't know how evil of a man Donald Trump is. I just think he's a dumbass who loves to be in front of the camera, and I think Joseph McCarthy was the same way. He was a dumbass that loved to be in front of the camera, but he was played and he was used to bring incredible discrimination and pain to queer communities. Absolutely. But, in fact, McCarthy actually recused himself as chair of the Purge Committee, the one that Senator Hoy had been on, but while Hoy was in... Was, but while Hoy wasn't interested in publicity, he certainly wasn't a progressive man. He had a very low opinion of homosexuals and on women as well. He tried, Surprise. Yeah, right? The guy who was 70 really, in the 50s. <laughs> I'm really surprised by this, everybody. The old Wait, that means he was born in like 1880. That's pretty cool. What? What is cool about it? Being born in the 1800s. That's pretty cool. <laughs> okay, yeah, I guess. I a very unprogressive time, but... Well, I just... I don't know. It's a phenomenal much. time for a white man, though. So, this was their prime. I guess so. So, he had a very low opinion of homosexuals and on women. He tried to block one female member of the of the committee, Senator Margaret Chase Smith, from attending the hearings. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing this changed. is just so... I, why does this like, why has the Republican Party not changed since then? <laughs> right, why is this exactly the same thing? The late 1940s, the Republicans have not changed one goddamn bit. Why, why, this is literally the exact, one, the exact same things they're saying today, mm-hmm. two, the exact same things they're doing, mm-hmm. and three, the exact same fame, the exact same people they're targeting. Now they've just added Mexicans because, you know, they're like, you know what? The homosexuals are getting their rights, so I guess we have to like back off of them a little bit. What? Who else can we target now? I don't know. Maybe the Mexicans who statistically haven't done anything worse than anybody else. Right. Uh, I Well, I, to, to make one point clear, because people will probably point it out, this we should be talking about white Republican males because uh, Margaret Chase Smith was actually a Republican at this time. And um, oh yeah, it's always males. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If but, you look through history, I feel that women—well, I can't say all women, but I feel like most women, regardless of party affiliation, generally are more progressive than the male counterparts. The most there are. That's why. Yeah, I said I'm not thinking of like Michelle Bachman right or now, or like Sarah Palin. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm not saying all, but I feel like m- more so than. Other. Well, because women have felt oppression, right? Right. You, if you felt oppression, you're more likely to resonate with others who have felt oppression. So, because women have constantly been pushed down. But this also shows the hypocrisy in in the party. They had this Republican senator who was, I was about to say, Smith was the first woman to serve in both houses in Congress and the first woman nominated for president by a major party. So, her party nominated her as president. But they also, um, but also there were many in it that didn't even want the her to be in their committees, right? You know, and they justified it by all these ways. I just we're just gonna say things that a woman shouldn't hear. You know what I'm saying? Women just got the right to vote. How can we ensure that they know what they're talking about in the government? Oh, right. We shouldn't have even given the right to vote if you're asking me. <laughs> so Hoy was a old-fashioned misogynist and bigot who complained after hearing on two lesbians. Can you please tell me what two women could possibly do? I'm sure he was, they had a lot to do. <laughs> he was actually was actually literally like couldn't understand. He couldn't wrap his like <laughs> the two women were brought before a hearing and he could not wrap his mind about what they were doing. Like, huh? What? <laughs> but what are they doing? They're having sex. They're having sex. Why? How? With what? <laughs> but where's the guy in it? Where? Where? I don't understand how that works. <laughs> 
Hey Queerstians, thanks for listening to today's episode of Your Queer Story. Audible is offering a free audiobook download with your free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I love Audible. I have had my subscription for over two years and it is worth every single penny. I listen to it all the time. I hate to read, but I love listening to things while I work. Audible gives me the opportunity to listen to the best-selling books while I'm at my computer or driving and makes the day fly by. And the best part is that Audible offers a wide variety of queer-friendly books as well. So you can listen to anything from The Queer History of the United States by Michael Bronski to over 200 LGBTQ fantasy novels. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com queer. Again, that's audibletrial.com queer for your free audiobook. Holy's right-hand man, Francis Flanagan, consolidated lists of sex deviants compiled through different agencies. Which, by the way, his last name's Flanagan. He was probably a sex deviant himself. (laughs) The Navy had over 8,000 names. The Army had 5,000. Local police records showed 3,000 civilians. These were actually their individual black books. Yes. That that they they could call because they wanted to have somebody on call just in case. And they had a pretty good compilation at this point. Yeah, and they used these to, yeah, like, they they used, oh, wait, you're saying that they used, hold on. I'm sure someone did. I was going to say they used these as blackmail books because they did. They would keep these names. No, his last name was Flanagan. He was definitely calling the people on this book. Francis Flanagan wanted to. He wanted a few books. He's like, no, no, seriously, this is for research. I just want a little little research on these fellas. Mm Surprisingly, uh, the Park Police only had a few hundred names, but altogether, Flanagan calculated 16,500 recorded homosexuals in the federal government or the Washington, D.C. area. He requested the names on the list, but was denied. This was not an attempt to protect queer citizens, but rather a ploy to make it appear that Truman was covering for homosexuals and hoped that the public would turn against Democrats in the next election. Yeah, so so basically, so what he could do is he could access the, the number, like he could call and, or not call at that time really, like you could a little, but he could contact them and say he wanted you know approximately how many people they had on file. And like I said, they used these names to blackmail people. Um, to get what they wanted, the police or the you know department heads, and also just to keep track records of people. And but when Flanagan requested the names on the list, um, some Republicans went through private channels. He didn't realize he was being denied by Republicans. He thought he was being denied by Democrats, but he was being denied by public Republicans so that they could make it look like Truman was protecting homosexuals. And they could announce to the world, "Look at this! The administration's not letting us have the names of these perverts. We deserve to know." Also, one other note in there, uh, when we talked about how the Park Police only had a few hundred names, if you remember, Lafayette Park was a major hookup point for, um, you know, gays and lesbians and and the queer community. So um, the fact that the Park Police only had a couple hundred names shows that something was going on. Like, they were clearly turning, still turning a blind eye, in a sense. Well, either they were turning a blind eye or the... um the people calculating these numbers for the government were just adding a couple hundred here and there, you know? It could be. that That's a good point, too. I mean, I, you know, you've got the Navy and the Army. I don't know. I mean, they're saying they have... The Navy said they had 8,000 Which makes a lot of sense. Have you ever seen the sailors? <laughs> exactly, right? They're I all think, gay. And also, homosexual is becoming more and more to any person who had ever had any kind of homosexual um, interaction or, you know, you know, same-sex interaction. So, um... And in the Navy, that's basically everyone. So throughout the next few years, Truman's administration quietly dismissed queer individuals and the scandal began to subside. Then, in 1953, a new president and a new party gained control of Washington, D.C. 
Former World War II general and hero Dwight Eisenhower was elected as president. Much can be said of Eisenhower's deep connections to evangelical Christianity. Check out the book, One Nation Under God by Kevin M. Cruz. You need to read it. However, despite all the impact these ties have made on our nation for the last half century, we will do our best to stick to facts pertaining to the Lavender Scare. Republicans had campaigned under oh the slogan, gosh. Let's Clean House, which sounds an awful like Drain the Swamp, doesn't it? Let's Clean House, Drain the Swamp, same person. Same diff. Remember how we talked about how all the queens and kings were like vampires? <laughs> Just saying. That's right. Donald Trump has come back. Eisenhower came with the promise to rid the White House in Washington uh, once and for all of communist spies and sex perverts. Eisenhower's main opponent in the 1952 election had been Adelaide Stevenson, a wealthy intellectual, former State Department official, who was described as having a fruity voice. So, probably like Evans. Well, not like mine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> While these may have been strong attributes for a candidate in the past, Stevenson's characteristics were now the opposite of what most Americans were looking for in a male leader. So... The fruity voice was probably a strong characteristic because years ago, um, years prior to this time, is when there was when Hollywood was extremely gay. Mm -hmm. So when you had that recognition of hey, these sound, this person sounds just like all of the guys in Hollywood because all the guys in Hollywood were gay. Well, it was like an intellectual. An intellectual had these voice Europeans. It was just a softer, more mm -hmm. gentle. It wasn't this rough gruff like Murder. I gotta prove myself and, and how tough I am cause I'm a man I could spit in a jar and and I fuck women all the time and uh um, well, sometimes I cuddle with my buddy at night when we're out on camping trips but uh you know <laughs> it's not gay no, no homo, homo. <laughs> <laughs> in addition to all of this rumors that Adelaide was a homosexual began to swirl these rumors were perpetuated by none other than J. Edgar Hoover and Stevenson's ex-wife whether or not they were credible is hard to tell, as they were there was little actual evidence. <clears throat> Hoover simply wanted to aid in Eisenhower's victory, and Stevenson's wife was diagnosed with paranoia, and also told people of the many affairs her husband had with women. Despite a lack of evidence, Joseph McCarthy threatened to expose Stevenson on national television. Yeah, so Joe comes back in, but uh, so... Um... So Stevenson's wife, like, we don't want to underscore a woman that might have been hurt or scorned, but she really, she was diagnosed with paranoia. She told a lot of varying tales. So he may well have been a homosexual. I don't know. But she would go back and forth. One day he was fucking every woman that came across his path. The other next day he was a homosexual. He could have just been a man who loves sex. He could have been bisexual. We don't really know. Could um, she have been potentially schizophrenic? She or? could have been. Like, well, the, mm -hmm. the, the actual diagnosis was persecutory paranoia, which means she had a persecution complex, like a real one, not like the one that Republicans and conservatives have today. So she just, anything that she could, she just constantly believed that he was out to get her. And of course, J. Edgar Hoover, though, coming in here and planning these, these he planted these stories in newspapers about Stevenson. Obviously, that didn't help. And in social circles as well. However, Eisenhower had his own skeletons in the closet. And when McCarthy threatened Stevenson, so Joseph McCarthy throws, shows up. Once again, trying to gain the spotlight and weasel into a story that has nothing to do with him. Because what bigger story can you get at the time than the presidential election? Exactly, right? And so there, he's got his main screen time again. And when McCarthy started to threaten to expose Stevenson as a homosexual, Democrats came back with actual proof of Dwight's indiscretions. 
The election of 1952 perfectly depicts the hypocrisy of the so-called moral argument, which is the argument that we need a good, God-fearing, moral man in the White House. The truth is, Americans had known for almost a decade that Dwight Eisenhower had carried on a long-time affair with his secretary, Kay Summersby, while stationed overseas during World War II. In fact, the evidence that Dems had against Dwight was a letter in which Eisenhower had detailed his plan to leave his wife for his mistress at the end of the war. While Dwight and his vice president candidate, Richard Nixon, campaigned as good, God-fearing men, the country knew the, the would-be president was an adulterer. Yet, the known fact of Eisenhower's affair, compared to the unsubstantiated rumors of Adelaide Stevenson, did not prevent the nation from voting for the established cheater over the possible homosexual. So, of course, as always, any sin is better than being gay. Exactly. Exactly. Everyone knows that Eisenhower cheated on his wife, and not some one-time thing. Like, carried on an open affair overseas. He carried on an open affair with his secretary. He made plans to divorce his wife. He only stayed with his... A lot of people think he only stayed with his wife because he then was approached with uh, running for president. Oh, he 100% only stayed Exactly. Right. If he had left her, he would have never made... We can't say concrete, but most no, likely... He definitely... <laughs> Would yeah. not have been elected president. Oh, no, no. He definitely wouldn't have been elected president. And so that's why I say they approached him to run for president. He had a good shot. He just had to stay with his wife. So the whole country knows that he's an adulterer. And then you have this one guy over here that may possibly be a homosexual. All you have is rumors. You don't have any actual evidence. He sounds a little gay, so he's probably gay. Exactly. And so this country that's all about morals and God-fearing people, they choose the guy who's an adulterer. Just like they always do, just like in this election. There's so many comparisons between the election of 1952 and this and the past election in 2016. You know how Trump said, grab her by the pussy? Yeah. He actually did. Exactly. So the conservative Americans went with a man who bragged about assaulting women, who has a long history of cheating on his wife. They went with him over a woman who stood by her husband who cheated. And I'm not... We're not getting into the whole Hillary argument. The point is, you had a woman who stood by her husband who's a, a cheater, and you have a man who has cheated on multiple wives and has record of abusing women and conservatives who pretend to care about that kind of shit repeatedly vote the opposite way. So I don't know. Make up your fucking mind. To be fair, even the gays thought Stevenson leaned their way. Many considered Adelaide to be the first gay candidate for president, though most admitted that this was just a fantasy. And it wasn't just Stevenson's orientation that was mocked. He was considered so effeminate that his gender was often called into question. When Eisenhower and Adelaide matched off again in 1956, yes, they did it again, I don't know why, Gossam columnist Walter Winchell said on air, A vote for Adelaide Stevenson is a vote for Christine Jorgensen. This was, of course, a reference to American transgender icon who made headlines in 1952 as the first open male-to-female transsexual. This statement also gives us a glimpse into the public's thoughts on trans individuals. With a new manly president in the White House, white cisgender heterosexuals could rest easy that their president would protect them. Within three months of gaining office in 1953, Eisenhower issued Executive Order 10450. The order stated that a federal employee could be terminated for any behavior which suggests the individual is not reliable or trustworthy, and included behaviors such as infamous, dishonest, immoral, or notoriously disgraceful conduct, habitual use of intoxicants to excess, drug addiction, or sexual perversion. Notice how he didn't include adultery in there? Oh, no, no, absolutely not, no. 
While some agencies had previously used similar guidelines in hiring and assessing risks, Eisenhower's administration made these rules a national standard and a requirement in any kind of federal branch, agency, or department, and Dwight was eager to let the public know of his progress. At his first televised appearance, he took time to detail the new security program, or as some would call it, the integrity program. In his private memoirs, Eisenhower wrote, Many loyal Americans, by reason of instability, alcoholism, homosexuality, or previous tendencies, associate with communist front groups or unintentionally security risks. Homosexuals, in some instances, because of moral lapses, they become subjected to the threat of blackmail by enemy agents. So you notice here that communism was farther down Dwight's list of concerns. It is important to note that communism was no longer public enemy number one, and Americans were starting to distinguish between queers and commies. The Washington Star said just as much. Security risks have little or nothing to do with communism or communist membership or sympathies. Just three years before, it seemed essential to link the two, but now the public was openly festering in their disdain of LGBTQ communities, and they no longer needed to hide behind the red veil. So they were more worried about gay men or mm -hmm. any part of the queer any, community yeah. than of people actually throwing over the government. Exactly. It just it shifted. Like Before, it was like the subconscious, homosexuals and communists are the same, and now, by the time Eisenhower gets in, in uh, the office, it's... You know what? Fuck the commies. What we care about are the, all the gays and, and uh, lesbians and, you know, any queer people in our government. Which, if you think that queer people are more of a security risk than, than anything else, there's probably <laughs> something wrong with you. Exactly. So a new head of security would be needed to drain the swamp of homos, and Eisenhower chose R.W. Scott McLeod. McLeod was an aggressive and terrifying individual who shred federal offices of any bit of privacy, even going so far as to steam open others' mail, and was known as the Shadow, and accused of having a Gestapo mentality. He was also a huge admirer of Joe McCarthy, and even kept a picture of his hero proudly displayed on his desk. Uh, that sounds pretty gay to me. Exactly. At his first congressional committee, McLeod told the board members, the campaign toward eliminating all types of sex perverts from the roles of the department will be pressed with increased vigor. All forms of immorality will be rooted out and banished from the service. And he kept his word. Within 10 days of starting his new job, he had already fired 16 sexual deviants. There was no leniency or forgiveness. A single offense, a single offense meant one's immediate dismissal. And while the list of behaviors had included alcoholism, dishonesty, drug use, and more, McLeod made it clear that he had only one objective. I have attempted very frankly and honestly to face the issue of sexual perversion, the practice of sodomy, and the State Department. It is a security risk and a condition which calls for psychiatric treatment. McLeod was so devoted to casting out homos that he had an entire branch devoted to them known as the Miscellaneous N Unit. I don't know what it stands for. I didn't see. But again, while this unit was supposed to be for all security risks, it focused almost solely on homosexuals. All cases were divided into two categories, homosexual cases or other moral cases. Notes from 1954 show that during a three-month period of 27 terminations, only one case landed in the other moral cases file. Interrogations were held daily, and one agent speculated that 80% of those examined eventually admitted to charges and resigned. The likelihood that 80% of those accused were actually gay is slim and shows the relentless tactics of the miscellaneous in-unit. 
1955, the M unit, now known as the Sex Squad, averaged one dismissal a day. Polygraphs were introduced, and guidelines were stretched to include homosexually inclined ind individuals. This could mean anyone who had ever indulged in any type of same-sex same activity, no matter how long ago or how much they had changed. In McLeod's eyes, there was no rehabilitation for queer individuals. Employees worried they might somehow be caught up in McLeod's terror turned on each other. Anonymous letters poured in, wishing to aid in the hunt or to simply deflect attention from themselves, and McLeod and his department claimed to investigate every single allegation. So, I mean, it's just, it's typically what happens when you feed hysteria. People are afraid that they're going to get caught up in it, and so they start bailing, and they start, like, there were letters I read, and I, we didn't have time to put it all in here because this episode's already going to be longer, but just people just writing, like, you know, I noticed that my boss wears her shirt slightly too low, and I'm wondering, his haircut is a, is a little long for me. Uh, he has a feminine manner. She walks more like a man. And people would just write, and they would send these letters in, and McCloyd, and then would, and they would investigate. So anyone who, stri who slightly deviated from the, you know, strictly man or strictly girl roles that were being, you know, set by society at this time, were the, any person who deviated was being investigated. And, of course, like you said, 80% are so-called admitting to these which just means they're being harassed and broken down broken down until they give in and they're say not, bye. They're not leave, allowed to leave until they say, you know what, yes, it's true. Exactly, <clears throat> exactly. And at this time, people were literally sending in letters. Mm -hmm. So potentially queer people were sending in letters so that people would investigate other people yeah. so that way the attention was off of them. Exactly, they were trying to deflect. In 1954, one year after taking office, Eisenhower announced in his State of Union address that 2,200 so-called security risks had been removed. However, as it's been proven that politicians and especially zealots love to exaggerate, that particular number was called into question. But unlike his predecessors such as McCarthy, Dwight refused to back down on his claim and simply stated that he would not provide any further information or evidence, just know that it was true. <laughs> the press called the president and his administration out on this, but eventually the story died. What mattered to the people was that something was being done about the sodomite problem. Eisenhower was also elected by oh, Russia. Yeah. Probably. Probably. <laughs> Probably. Russia's been meddling in our ship for a long time, folks. Yep. Even the accusation of homosexuality grew in a career or an individual's life. The fear of an individual or their loved one being exposed was blinding. In 1954, Democratic Senator Lester Hunt was up for re-election in an easy win against an unknown Republican candidate. And that is until pressure was applied by Style Bridges. If you remember from our first episode, Bridges was the man who pushed McCarthy to turn his attention onto the queer community rather than the communist community. He was also a personal mentor to Scott McLeod, and truly just a skeezy, evil old man. Bridges had information that Hunt's son was a homosexual and pressed the chief of police to arrest and prosecute the boy, even though the chief intended to drop the charges. The ensuing trial, imprisonment, and public shame left Lester Hunt broken, and he, and he withdrew from the race. Ten days later, he committed suicide in his office. Author Alan Drury would write a best-selling novel based on the story titled Advice and Consent, which, by the way, if you sign up for your free Audible trial at audibletrial.com queer, you can uh, download that today and take a listen. It is considered by many, including past presidents, to be one of the best novels ever written about the workings of Washington. Yeah, there's actually pictures of both um, Johnson and Kennedy reading Advice and Consent. So it's a very popular novel, even today. And like I said, you can get it on Audible with your free book. 
Interrogations for queer federal employees intensified. One story sheds light on how these interviews went. Madeline Tress was interviewed by two M-Unit agents in April of 1958. They interrogated her on her visitations to the Redskins Lounge, a well-known lesbian bar. Sounds like a lesbian bar. (laughs) Tress began to feel nervous, then terrified, when one agent taunted her. How do you like having sex with women? You never had it good until you had it from a man. Of course. One of those, wow, people don't change their lines, do they? (laughs) Tress was rattled and resigned the next day. When she found out who her informant was, a guy named Bob, who worked in the cubicle next to her, she and her lesbian friends harassed him at all hours of the night with phone calls. They'd call him, call him a son of a bitch, and hang up. And then they'd wait a half hour, and they'd call him again, and they'd be like, you son of a bitch, and they'd hang up. (laughs) Good stuff. As Washington became unsafe and unlivable for LGBTQ individuals, the strong queer communities began to vanish. It is estimated that by 1960, 1,000 homosexuals had been fired and approximately 5,000 had been forced to or coerced to resign. Remember, we are speaking of employment, but this touched every part of a person's life, from housing and living conditions to socializing and family, uh, medical care, safety, food, freedom, all of these aspects and more were affected by the homosexual purges in Washington. Queers in the capital, queers in the capital needed a voice. They found one in Frank Kameny. Kameny was an astronomer and government scientist who worked on mapping distances around the globe to accurately target intercontinental missiles. Needless to say, he was a very smart man, and we will do a full episode on him in the future, to be sure. There's a lot to cover there. We actually uh, use his quote, gay is good, to... Um kind of brand our Tumblr. So if you're looking for somewhere where you can go to kind of see some positive things about the queer community, our Tumblr is dedicated specifically to positive aspects of the queer community. Yep. In 1957, Kameni was terminated due to his homosexual misconduct, but he was not going to go down quietly. After first attempting to find another job, which proved useless due to his record and termination, um, Frank hired a lawyer to fight his dismissal from the U.S. Army. That's where he had, that's, that was a branch of government. He took he it all the way in. to the Supreme Court. He did. He did not back down. He tried to, to take it to every single aspect he could. And even um, after he was eventually, they wouldn't even hear his trial in the Supreme Court. They yep. completely just ignored him and pretended like it never happened. Uh, he continued to be an LGBTQ activist until his death. And um, a lot of people actually point out that because of him, that's the reason they're allowed to have a career today. Exactly. Well, well, what committee? Um, in the beginning, he he, you know, he admits that he it wasn't about him being gay. He actually sought to distance himself from his homosexuality. But by the time the case reached the Supreme Court, he had this following of support, and he realized that this was more than just about him getting his job back. This was about fighting the regulations in place that permitted. Um, that prevented homosexuals from, you know, even uh, applying or or working in the government. Mm-hmm. The committee pointed to the government's policy of protecting religious and racial minorities. Why didn't homosexuals deserve those same protections? His lawyer argued that the purges had not only robbed gays and lesbians of their jobs, but intensifies, intensified anti-gay sentiment and made their livelihood unduly hard. While the Supreme Court would refuse to even hear the case, a new movement was formed. Kameni would become the nation's leading gay activist and would head the fight to overturn the government's ban on homosexuals. He helped to form the Washington Madison Society, an independent branch of the first Madison Society founded by Harry Hayes. 
On July 1st, 1969, almost 25 years after its start, the Lavender Scare officially ended when the Supreme Court ruled on the Norton decision that federal civil servants could, not, could no longer be fired simply for being homosexual. Just a week earlier, Stonewall had taken place, and four years later, the DSM would remove homosexuality as a disease. A movement was born in the Lavender Scare. It was a necessity we did not realize was needed, yet when pressed, the LGBTQ community proved, like we always do, that we will not be silenced. You ever try to silence a drag queen? Try to every day. Doesn't work. <laughs> Today, we are once again experiencing a government that is trying to subversely silence us, but we are aware of their tactics. <laughs> History repeats itself, and that is why it is so important to know your queer story. We can stand ready to face these challenges because we know that we are stronger than hate and prejudice. As the military tries to ban transgender and HIV-positive soldiers, as states roll out bathroom bills and deny adoption rights, we fight back. And that's your motivation for the day, Queershins. We are so happy you've joined us. Next week, we will be discussing Catherine Lee Bates and Wilsley marriages, as, long, as well as a few other strong lesbians. So some good lesbian content there. Also, our resources for this episode and last episode is The Lavender Scare by David K. Johnson, as well as Advise and Consent, which is on Audible. Uh, we just want to make sure we uh, acknowledge our main resource for every episode, so that's The Lavender Scare, and also remember, check out Advise and Consent on Audible. So make sure you check us out on social media, download and share our episodes, and stay queer. Don't get a lobotomy. And we love you, Christians. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe and review wherever you are listening and follow us on social media at Your Queer Story. Like what you heard? Want to share your story? Send us a voice message to add to the podcast from the Anchor app or at anchor.fm slash yourqueerstory. And if you would like to support the work we do or get exclusive content, check us out on patreon.com slash yourqueerstory. See you next week. Bye. Bye.